Hello and welcome to another edition of Doing Things Better and Doing Better Things. It's an occasional podcast where I talk to people who have changed what they do in order to make a big difference to the world or even to themselves. And this episode is no different. It's a conversation with um, a, a j- lovely, lovely, lovely man um, talking to Simon White. Simon, well, I'm not going to tell you what Simon does. He'll tell you what he does. But he is just one of those people that whenever I see him, I smile. Whenever I see him, I want to go and talk to him. He brings a joy, but he also brings an inquisitiveness. And in, and I want to say interrogation, but that's maybe too strong a word. He he brings with him an it is it's an inquisitive approach to life, and he has a deep and uh, we share a deep love of music i don't care what that what that music is um it's it's utterly charming and he i mean this is a very um a very moving podcast and he is genuinely uh, a really amazing creative incredible guy so took in so i'm sat here it's we're in the middle of corona lockdown and i'm i'm recording a podcast with Someone who I've already recorded one with, but it was so windy as we were walking around Soho that we couldn't use it. And it was heartbreaking because number one, he's such a lovely man. And number two, I really, really enjoyed it. The stories and the conversation was great. Thankfully, neither of us can remember what we spoke about. So this will feel like a fresh one. So um, I'm sat with Simon. Simon, tell me about yourself. Oh, hey, Mark. Um, so I'm Simon, Simon White. Uh, lots of people probably know me as Purple Sime on the interwebs. I am uh, an old man. I'm getting old. I'm 47 years old. Um, I'm sitting in my bedroom looking out onto a sunny vista and a lovely tree. Um, and I am, I think I'm a, a kind of strategisty type shaped person. But um, I've I've got my fingers in as many pies as I possibly can in order to not be pigeonholed. But if you want to pigeonhole me, I think about problems and how we might solve them in business and branding and stuff. And how did how did you get to that? I mean, what, t- 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 tell me. Well, it's best to start at the beginning, isn't it? Tell me. Yeah. Tell me about growing up. Where did, where did you grow up? What, what did your what did your childhood um, smell of, taste of, sound like? So I grew up in a, in um, the country. So I live in London now, but um, on the outskirts of London in the Greater London conurbation. Um, but I grew up in Surrey, in the middle of the stockbroker belt, uh, which makes me sound. You can tell this by my accent. Makes me sound incredibly posh. But my family were one of the first um, fifteen thousand families ever to get benefits. Uh, it's called the Fizz in those days, in the seventies. So I came from a very um, a, a lovely background but you know by today's standards in the poverty trap um but so i grew up around people who had lots of money but i grew up in a tied cottage next to a churchyard in a little village called albury which is in surrey um and it's a beautiful part of the world um and because we had the the churchyard next to us it was kind of like nobody ever went there except on sundays so you had quite a lot of um exploring now my dad um worked for the local estate so the local woodland um which is owned still to this day i think by the uh, duke of northumberland and so he worked um on that estate and so we basically had all of that 
um, estate to roam around as kids. Um, me and my, uh, I had an older brother. Well, I still have an older brother. <laughs> I just don't talk to him. So, um, uh, so yeah, I had a pretty, on the face of it, a pretty idyllic childhood. I could go out on my bike, you know, roam around as kids did in the in the seventies and and eighties, um, build dens, all that kind of stuff, um, and also muck about in a churchyard. That's brilliant. So what did you, because we, we share a child, I'm a few years older than you, but we share a childhood. Um, and, and those like building dens in hedges, um, hiding in churchyards, frightening people to death. And <laughs> yeah. in my case, uh, conquering, going for conquest from the churchyard, um, from the churchyard trees. It was just utterly brilliant and totally free range. Do you climb um, trees, Mark? Did you, are you a tree climber? I was a tree climber, but I was, I'm going to call myself I'm going to call myself a timid tree climber. So I was perfectly happy going up to like the second or the third Y. And beyond there, I wouldn't go out on a limb. <laughs> <laughs> Good. I like it. I like it. No, well, I, I loved climbing trees. And I was pretty, because I'm, I'm a wiry kind of guy. So I'm, I'm, yeah, I've got very little muscle in terms of like, you know, like a kind of big muscly arms or anything. But... Um, I'm quite a wiry guy, so I'm quite good at pulling up my own weight, uh, or at least I was then. It's starting to settle around the belly now, but um, I was really good at climbing trees. And I still, I, I, if if I didn't think about what might happen as a 47-year-old man falling 25 foot from a tree, I'd probably still climb them today. I'm really big, big fan of climbing trees. I don't know why, but I love when, them. when was the last one? When was the last time you climbed a tree? The last time I can I can remember properly climbing a tree was probably about well, my daughter's thirteen nearly now, so she would have been about five. So probably about eight years ago, and um, she climbed a tree and I climbed up with her. I took her a bit too far, so she hates she hates heights. Um, I think probably can lead right back to that moment. Um, that was probably the last time. The time before that it was probably about another 10 years and I and somebody got a ball stuck in a tree about 35 foot up yeah. um and uh this little kid was just crying and I just went up the tree and got the ball and everyone did that great thing the ball came down everyone cheered and I'm stuck up I've sat up the tree and everyone else just cleared off <laughs> to go and play football with this kid and I'm like oh thanks you know I really needed someone to kind of guide me down a little bit because I was quite high up but um I think I did. Uh, I didn't fall like too far, but I did have a few um, squeaky bum moments. Yeah. Oh, bet. Oh, bet. And is it is it the climbing or is it the pinnacle that you enjoy the most? I love climbing. I was very good at rock climbing as a, a kid. Um, I just yeah. I just have that build that's good at that's good at climbing. You have. You've got you know, lightweight, long arms, very strong. It's perfect. It's absolutely perfect. Yeah. Um, that's amazing. And um, did you did you rock climb as a kid? Um, I, well, we went on, you know, like on a school trip kind of stuff. Um, it wasn't like it is today where there was a lot of facilities to do that kind of stuff. But um, so where I grew up is on the on the downs um, in in the North Downs in, in the south of England. So it's not particularly hilly, but you can find, you know, some substantial places to have a go at that kind of stuff and then as I got older I did things like went climbing in Snowdon and a lot of stuff down in Cornwall and we went to a place called Calshot which is near Southampton it's like an activity 
I don't even know if it still exists. I want to Google it as soon as I get off this call. Um, but um, yeah, we did a lot of climbing stuff there and I did outward bound and things like that as part, you know, when I was at um, college and things. So I was, it was just one of the things. Um, I'm not particularly a big fan of heights, but I don't seem to think about it. You know, that's going to be my next question. Um, I'm okay going up. It's when I stop and look down that it all becomes a bit too much for me. And, and I, I always remember me and my mates when I was one of my, my, my probably my favorite, my favorite paid, my favorite employed job was working for an amazing guy um, called Dailana. He's a, a Welsh fella working in Bradford and um, he's the best boss I ever had. And he and me and a couple of the others went up to Glencoe to go climbing. And, um, and we climbed up and everything was fine and dandy. We had a really good time. And even all the way to the top, I was not a problem. Everything was great. Looking, looking back where I'd come, didn't feel sick. And then as soon as I climbed up onto the top, onto the very, very, you know, once I, once I was above everything, I had, to lay, I had to literally lay flat. I couldn't deal with being higher than everything else. And then as soon as I came back off there onto the little ridge below the top, I was fine. So it, 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 the climbing I'm fine with, it, it's the looking down bit that I'm not so good at. I don't, I don't think I have a problem. I've had vertigo, like proper vertigo. Yeah. Um, so, uh, and I do get that sometimes with patterns. So certain shops, you'll remember our price, the yep. record shop. So for our younger listeners, our price was better than HMV. Always had the cool kids in. Um, it was as close to an independent <laughs> record store you could get on a, on a kind of national <laughs> level, right? You know, it, it did. And, and did it become Virgin? Uh, I think Virgin bought, I think it went bust and Virgin bought the stores. I can't really remember. But it did that thing like, um, it's the same model that Waterstones has now. So it's a national chain with national distribution. But the, the, whoever ran it, so it wasn't a franchise, but whoever ran it could kind of stock it with whatever they thought would sell in their local area. Um, and so my hour price um, was was pretty damn cool um, so but they had um, in their ceiling they had this uh, square grid in a full ceiling and I could never buy anything from the the, the <laughs> sounds wrong to say this but the top shelf of the cassettes because as soon as I looked up it always felt like the ceiling was coming down and I'd get vertigo and I suffer from that still to this day and I've had some really actual proper vertigo nightmare like hospital brain scan stuff um, it because i I was, I think I was in Pizza Express and, uh, and it triggered it on their weird table. Cafe Nero is another brand that uh, I can't sit at their tables because the pattern on the table makes my um, vision go all weird. So I must have some kind of depth perception issue that's, that I don't know that, about. That's really interesting. So that, so that is, because I'll always remember, oh, you, when we're the same age-ish, um, but I remember sitting in the back of cars in the 70s and they often had... Um, that the white vinyl lining on the roof was often, I guess you call it peppered. So little yeah. small holes in, into the foam. And I remember, I always remember sitting in the back, listening to um, Fleetwood Mac rumoured, which was, you know, you'll, you'll agree, was the compulsory soundtrack to most car journeys. Uh, yeah. And I remember putting my head back and looking up and having that depth of field flip from this peppered roof which didn't allow me to focus on anything with any with any well with any depth and i remember it so clearly thinking 
I kind of like this. I kind of like this not knowing where the route, and I'd I'd often find my hand wafting in front of me to to then touch it, to work out how far away it truly was. Maybe it was. Vision's a weird thing, isn't it? But um, it's, I kind of, I guess it's like, I don't think I have synesthesia, but I imagine if you've got synesthesia, it must be a really, when you discover that no one else like has it it must be a really weird i guess even color blindness anything that's that's that is not unique but is is different enough that you when you realize other people don't have it um so yeah i've never you're the first person i've ever chatted to about that it's gone oh yeah yeah i, I kind of have this it feels to me like a really odd it, it, it is an odd thing, thing but, but i but i but i get it and i had the same thing i mean the 70s were Fucking lethal, weren't they? We had polystyrene. It was all patterns. It was all patterns. We had polystyrene ceiling tiles in our kitchen for a little while. They didn't last long because the fire risk was huge. Yeah. I'll always remember. I used to get it really early. Well, nothing's changed, has it? I still get it really early. I get it really early, and and I I lay on the kitchen floor looking up at the ceiling tiles, and and the same thing would happen because they were bobbled and dinted. I'd lose all kind of depth. I mean, it's. It's a bit like those, uh, what were those like optical illusions that were big in the 90s? Stereo, the stereoscopic pictures. Well, yeah, where you had to stare at them a bit oddly in order to um, magic, magic, uh, magic something. Yeah, and I could always do it. I was just one of those things. Yeah, I, me too. I, I yeah. could pull my eyes out of focus and, and I could always see the thing that others could, not, not everyone couldn't see. Obviously, there's a group of us that, that can just do it. But I kind of love that. And tell me, Tell me what you listen to. Tell me, I mean, music fascinates me. Music is such a passion of mine. Um, what were you listening to when you were growing up? What's your first musical memory? There you go, that's a better one. What's your first musical memory? So music was a massive um, part of my childhood. So my mum, she, if she, uh, so born in the late 40s. So in the 60s, the 60s was her decade uh, from probably 60, four I would have would suggest she would have been about 15 then 15 16 so that's always a pretty seminal time in most people's lives like the 17 15 16 and 17 where you're transitioning from a a a child to 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 an adult um and it's that kind of liminal period so my mum um I guess again in the 60s it would have started to sort of started to loosen as it were um and so my mum um her dad was a musician um he was in georgie fame's band and various bands in the 60s your dad was in georgie fame's band not my dad my my mum's dad my granddad i've never i never met him um he was a piano player and um and various other instruments that he could play so music would have been a huge influence on her so in the 60s, she, she went out and saw the Beatles, the Stones, and, you know, every band that was big, probably from 64 to 68, that would have been a, a four-year chunk of my mum's life where she would have been, um, you know, out at gigs. Uh, you know, I remember her saying, oh, I saw the Kinks in a pub in Guildford. Guildford was, um, a, a, you know, local to me as well as a, as a big town. So she would have gone, and the Kinks played there like before anyone really knew them in a pub, and my mum was there because that's the kind of thing that she did. Um, so all her records were 
my records. We had a we had a, we were given as a kid, you know, a, a, a well, I guess now it'd be like um, probably everyone would love it. It's like a record in a in a case, right? You could carry around a record player in a case. Um, so we had one of those, a Danette, I think they're called. Yeah, a Danset. That's it. Yeah, Danset. Thank you. Um, so uh, we had one of those and her record collection. My dad was a bit of a rocker. He likes status quo these days. Someone asked you. Um, <laughs> <laughs> he so he he was a big Who fan, but also kind of like um, moving into I guess what you would class as pre-Zeppelin bluesy rock kind of stuff. And then there was a whole mishmash of shellac 78s and things like that um pinky and perky's greatest hits and all this kind of weird stuff well, I, we ha I had i had that record i had that record and, and my, my challenge was always to slow it down enough to be, to make so it sounded <laughs> yeah I was intrigued by the creatures that were sat behind those voices so by, by putting my finger on it because i think it ran at 33 so you couldn't slow it down with you know obviously yeah. 45 and 78 makes it quicker so, so I used to run my finger on it to slow it down to hear it properly. You should have just broken it, Mark. It's a terrible record. Oh, horrific. But, um, but I, don't, um, I, I don't even know why I had it, actually. Anyway. I think everyone, you know, it must have been one of those, you know, it's the Sports Direct mug of the decade. So obviously we didn't have Sports Direct then, thank God. But that, you know, it's like every office has a, a, a Sports Direct mug, um, almost without fail. And no one knows where it's come from. So every family in the 70s had a Pinky and Perky album and nobody knows who bought it. Isn't that interesting? I reckon, I reckon that's, a, that's my insight for this podcast. Um, so yeah, so music was a huge, a huge part of my life. And my mum cleaned the church. Um, so um, I used to go up to church and I used to piddle about with the organ and, you know, try that kind of stuff. But then I obviously... I, um, I was really into music, not just listening to it, but just, you know, I could um, whistle a tune. I'm not very good at singing. Um, I like singing, but I'm not particularly good at it. But I'm pretty good about, you know, if someone, if I hear a tune, I can pick up most instruments and kind of play back and get better at playing back. So I was really good at doing that on the piano. Not, not amazing, but good enough that I could get lessons. So um, music was a huge part of my life and still is a huge part of my life um, now. So and you, I'm like you, like you, you know. You play piano. Um, not badly now, but I did play. I, I did up to grade five. I played guitar quite reasonably well, um, and various. You know, I got harmonicas and didgeridoos and um, various odds and sods in in the in the back room and under under beds and things like that. And they get hauled out every so often, and I have a bit of a jam session. And, um, but yeah, I was in bands and things like that. I'm not not anyone that anyone would know. We were covers bands and you know pub pub bands so what's your favorite instrument well sorry when you're feeling low what's the instrument you pick up first i'd always get acoustic guitar i'd pick up my acoustic guitar or my, or my classical guitar and um and, and just play something that would be my go-to something maudlin or would you would you aim for an uplifter oh i don't know it depends um Oh, that's a good question. I'd probably just, um, this is really sad. I'd probably do some scales to start with because that's just, that's just really sad. But um, just to limber up, then I'd probably just bash through something that I quite like um, bashing through, which might be likely to be a Cure song. I do like playing Cure songs. They're, they're incredibly 
fun to play considering they're so goth yeah um but yeah i'd quite yeah um boys don't cry is a great song to bash you on a guitar and anyone it's one of those um songs that anyone can play i reckon well this is the best time conversation ever because mabel my youngest daughter 16 i've been wanting to play guitar since i was six i'm now 51 um and Mabel's been wanting to play guitar for a few years. So we're going to, we're going to, that's what we're going to do over the next couple of weeks. So you reckon Boys Don't Cry is a good place for me to start? It's a really, right. It's, it's uh, there's some cheats, right? It, so you don't have to, because it's bar chords, which is, as a starter, is really hard. But there's things called fifths, which is kind of your heavy metal kind of um, chords. You can play those. You can play it with one, one finger and one note. It's a bit like, um, Smoke on the Waters, the other classic. Dun, dun, dun. It's a bit like that in terms of chords. I get on a Zoom call with you, man. I can teach you boys don't cry within five minutes. It's just super oh, easy. I'd love that. It's a, it's a great, and it's, a, and it's such a great, it's, a, it's an easy song to sing. It's, a, it's the Cure, the, I'm a, I am a bit of a Cure fan, and I think their they're Glastonbury set is, is, I wish I'd been there. In the Cure Life quite a few times and they're always great but I think that Glastonbury set is 60 years old and it was as if they were still in their 20s um, uh, but they, they, their songs they're just brilliant pop songs but really goth that's what I always find quite the, ooh, so everyone goes they're really ugh. the two songs I hate of the Cure are Love Cats and Friday I'm in Love because they're just the, they're, the, they're so uncure and they don't feel like good pop songs to me, but it's the songs that everyone else goes, oh yeah, I love that song by The Cure. Um, but anyway, sorry, we're, we're digressing a lot, aren't we? No, Music. no, we're not. No, no, this is, this is exactly where I want to be. And, and, it, and it, is, it is really interesting. I was, I've just had a really lovely conversation with James Sills, um, who's a choir leader um, and he's responsible for Sofa Singers, amongst other things. Mm-hmm. And he and I were talking about the dark light of music and how pop in particular is a really great place to bring in a little bit of darkness. And we talked about, it started with us talking about the Pet Shop Boys, who I utterly love, and their song. Yeah, and Soft Cell as well. They're, oh. I would say a good, good predecessor of, of Pet Shop Boys in a similar vein would be soft, really dark Soft Cell. Really dark, like non-stop erotic cabaret. I remember buying that. That's the first album I ever bought, I think. It was about 1981. It was either that or Human League Dare. I can't remember which. And um, I, I remember putting it on a moment, because I'd, obviously I'd come across Tainted Love, which was a, you know, Gloria Jones original um, reworking, and, and thought it would all be like that. And it isn't all like that. It's CD City, CD Films, and it's Blue Lights Flicker, The Hands of a Stranger. All of those songs were were just dark and soho and beautiful. And then we got from there into, um, is it Baby Bird, You're Gorgeous, which is a really dark yeah, yeah. song. And, and we both agreed that this, and, 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 and Rent by the Pet Shop Boys, equally got a dark side, but the best place to cast a shadow is, is in, in a pop song because, it's, because you don't expect it. And I, and I hear what you're saying about The Cure, they're jolly songs, you know, they're great to bounce around to on the dance floor, but they're, but they're fundamentally not the cure. Yeah. In my, in, in, in my opinion, and I, I mean, I share a love, Boys Don't Cry is, Boys Don't Cry is um, in my probably top 10 songs. 
Um, and also is the, the Walk. The Walk is such a great song. And Robert Smith's vocal on it is superb. And it's got a real dark edge to it. Really yeah. dark edge. They're, 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 um, yeah, they're, 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 they're one of those bands which everyone knows. But when you start to think about them uh, from a musical sense, rather than just a kind of just a listening sense, which makes me sound really snobbish. But um, what I mean by that is you suddenly realise how great the compositions are and how pop, actually quite poppy they are. They're not all in minor chords either. There's quite a lot of major chord stuff. But Robert Smith, for some, I don't, I don't know how he's, because he's the principal songwriter and Simon, the bass player, the two of those guys have somehow managed to work out how to compose a song in such a way that it is absolutely catchy, despite the fact it's all about your partner dying and, you know, and how you can't go on or someone breaking your heart as a, you know, and you're just like, oh God, I want to cry. But at the same time, what a great chord progression. Um, and it's, I just, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a massive fan of pop songs. Um, although I'm not, I wouldn't choose pop as a, as a, a genre of, I would, you know, hold my hands up and say, oh yeah, you know, I'm all about pop. But a good, a good pop song is, is one that you just go, actually, do you know what? Um, some metal band will cover that and it will sound brilliant as a metal song because it's just brilliantly composed and it's very little to do with the genre, it's to do with the songwriting skills. I, I, um, I agree. Great songwriting transcends different genres. And I came across, I can't remember what they're called now, I should know this because I only came across it the other week. I came across the, um, oh, oh, bear with me, the, the Hot Rats who, who were a Oh, I told you, yeah, we had, we had this conversation. You told me, yeah. It's, a, it's, a, it's essentially Supergrass. But yeah. I can't thank you enough because I absolutely love their covers. I really love them. They're brilliant, aren't they? Because uh, again, it's uh, I think again. Well, we had this conversation super on on LinkedIn of all places, but um, <laughs> Supergrass are a fantastic songwriting band, overshadowed massively by Radiohead in terms of Oxford, and yeah. overshadowed massively by um, Blur and Oasis. Blur, great band. No Oasis, on um, yeah, couple of good songs. I could I could not worry about losing them out of my record collection um, <laughs> as much as Blur. But I, but all that was happening in, you know, there's other bands around that time, Shed another example, massively overshadowed by the media representation of what was happening in the mid-90s. Yeah. And Supergrass, everyone remembers them for the grinning on the bikes. We are young, you know. running free, that one, yeah. yeah. But Caught and, by the Fuzz was an infinitely better song. And Caught oh, yeah. had this, this urgency of, I can feel him hiding from the police in that song. I can feel, I can feel that. And blaming his brother was really interesting. No, not blaming his brother. <laughs> Wanting his brother to be there. It's a brilliantly written song. I, I'm with you. They're famous for the one that is least important. Yeah, no, absolutely. And again, I think like The Cure. And there's loads of bands like this where uh, what people see and remember about them is not representative of, of who they are. Um, and I always find that fascinating about people when you see it in any um, creative expression where you imagine 
um, I don't know, like David Lynch would be another great example. It's like, I love his films, but he's a pretty, he's, he's amazing at so many other things. Yes. And some of his, uh, some of his painting and some of his music, I think it's infinitely better than his filmmaking. Um, but, you know, if you think of David Lynch, you go, oh, yeah, he's a bit odd and he, and he makes odd TV programs and, and films that make no sense. Um, and, not, you know, but his music is pretty solid and 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 accessible in ways that his films aren't um i love it when you find those weird facets of of um i guess creative people where you you see them for one thing where you think of them only for one thing but there's this whole deep like an iceberg you only see that tip but there's infinite amounts of, of stuff going on underneath Absolutely, yeah. no, com completely. And I'm, I'm trying to read some of his books on transcendental meditation at the moment. And I'll be honest, I think I think I need to be in a better, in a different, in a different mental state to read them. Um, yeah, lockdown. Yeah, yeah lockdown's probably not good. It's not. No, it it really isn't. So I've got this image. Then I've got this image of Wild Simon, like running around this acres and acres of of accessible countryside, with with the theme tune to the '60s that you have inherited from your mum and from your grandfather. And then how did that manifest itself when you turned into a teenager, when, 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 the, when the rest of the cultural references that you're exposed to were maybe, maybe even at odds to some of that stuff, or, or were they? So I got really into um, thrash metal. I got really into heavy metal um, as a teenager, probably about 13. I think ostensibly because um, the kids at the back of the bus were into heavy metal and it kind of through the osmosis of getting older as you start the front uh, i got a bus to school sorry let me just explain i lived in the country my school was in in guildford's like 10 miles away so they ran a, a community bus service I, I imagine they probably still do it in cornwall but in every other part of the country i suspect parents just get in their car and drive but this bus used to do a kind of 15 mile run and pick up kids along the way so the kids that got on before me um were into heavy metal and so they used to play it um uh, on ghetto blasters I, i'd been through like some weird phases i went um i was big into hip-hop in the in the 80s i went to break dancing classes at pineapple studios and stuff Did in you guildford really? Yeah, I was really, I carried around a ghetto blaster and pits of cardboard and did break dancing and stuff. Um, and I still have all the original vinyl um, stuff that came out around that sort of time. Um, they, there was like um, compilations that came out on a monthly basis. I have like 15 of them in um, vinyl, but I don't have a vinyl record player anymore. But I've got about, I've got loads of vinyl, but nothing to play it on. And I, and I probably should do something about that. But um, I got hugely into hip hop. I was, a, 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 again, and we can see this now. I'm not, I'm not happy about being pigeonholed and I'm very much about not happy about being pigeonholed with music. I was hugely into classical music because I played the piano. So I had to listen to a lot of classical music and I love it. Um, but it's got a time and a place. Normally in the car, chills me out stops me swearing at people um but yeah hip-hop um metal um and then i i was a rock dj um in my uh early 20s down in dorset um so we used to you know go to pubs and clubs and play rock music so again it exposed me to to kind of a 
wide range of stuff and then and then I started doing that thing where you start picking things you might have missed so I went back I went backwards uh, so in the 90s I spent a lot of time watching H, uh, MTV with Eddie Temple Morris who again one of my favorite uh, uh, people with a with a uh, musical kind of knowledge really smart lovely chap seems like a nice lovely chap he might be an arsehole I've got no idea but his way he comes music is he's op he's really open and I tried to be like that which led me um, to reappraise things I might have um, ignored um, such as things like pop um, and and music composition and that kind of stuff so I've, I've kind of been through but in my teenage years I I rebelled in the sense of I did the I listened to the music my parents absolutely hated and that's when I picked up the guitar stopped playing piano being bullied at school for being for playing piano because it was gay um so I stopped stopped it so about 12 13 and I and I and I bought a guitar off the we bought things off catalogs yeah um, too so yeah, I bought a guitar, which is the worst. I mean, I, it was unplayable, but somehow um, I, I learned to play on it. But it was un, unplayable. So I would say, if you're going to go and get a guitar, it's not about price necessarily, but it's don't don't buy the cheapest and don't buy it out of a catalogue. If you can, <laughs> obviously a bit more difficult now. But if you can go go uh, and play it, because you'll find one that you're comfortable with. And if that's 20 quid, great. If it's 120 quid or 320 quid, that's just, just get one that you're going to play. Well, I've, so I've, I've got a couple. I, I've done, I've walked this path before, right? When I was, when I was eight, my, my nan bought me a guitar secondhand that was utterly rubbish. All the strings broke on the first outing. And then I got snowballed <laughs> walking home from school with it. And the, um, and the, uh, the, it, the, the, what's the long bit called? What's that, what's that bit called? The fretboard. The fretboard snapped off. It was utterly shit. It was, uh, I was mercilessly bullied for, for, for it. But I've got, um, I've, I've been given, I've been lent a bass by my, by my friend Nigel, um, which I'm going to learn to play. And I've got a really nice semi-acoustic that I was bought by my mother-in-law, actually, which, is, which feels, that's the one that feels right for me. It's lovely in the hand. The texture of the wood's amazing. Um, I just need to, I just need to play the bloody thing, Simon. That's what I need to do. Yeah, I'm going to send you. I'm going to, I'm going to dig some stuff out and send it to you. I know probably from apologies to copyright owners, but um, um, I'm not going to send all the book, but I'll send you some stuff that um, that will be like a easy, easy to play things that get you excited. That's the thing of music. My daughter is an amazing singer. I'm not just saying that because people say that about their kids, right? tried to get her to learn the piano and things like that and she was never really like eh, not really into it the one thing she's always done is just sing and while sometimes it does drive me nuts that she sings the same line a hundred times it's like a it's like um i guess it would be the equivalent of 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 uh, uh meditation or breathing exercise for her she'll just sing to kind of calm herself down and get herself into a good place um, and not feel anxious and that kind of stuff and what it's done um, is is given her the confidence to just sing, and she is bloody amazing. She can knock out a, a Panic at the Disco song, note perfect, um, without mm -hmm. even like all the high note. And that guy, there's another guy that can. Again, you don't have to like Panic at the Disco, but if you want to hear a really top vocal, 
brilliant composer, just by the fact that I understand he's an absolute arsehole. Um, Brendan Uri from from uh, uh, Panic at the Disco is a is a brilliant example. And again, he did the Frozen Two soundtrack and it's done stuff with Taylor Swift. But everyone remembers Panic at the Disco for that kind of weird new metal um, Fallout Boy kind of like late or mid to late nineties kind of rock stuff that was, yeah. that was happening. That's how I, and that's how I put them absolutely. Massive pop band, huge pop band. Their later albums, again, I've become a, a, a bit of a fan um, of Panic at the Disco uh, simply through just stumbling across a late album and going, hang on a minute, this is a pop album. What's going on? What happened in between the, really the long song title guff they used to write that I quite liked, but it was all right, but it was of its time. What happened? So going back and, and there's a real... They must have hit on something where it just went, actually, do you know what? This is just a really good composition. And it doesn't matter that it's pop or it sounds poppy. Um, so, again, I, they're a little treasure trove. You might not like everything, but, um, but his vocals are amazing. My daughter can, can do that. So um, I love the fact that, that she's taken on my love and my mum's love and, and and my granddad's love of music but just taking it into her own thing and I think that's really 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 sweet but you've got to you've got to, to do the things that you love so you know she sings things I can't stand um but that's okay because that's what she likes singing um and as long as she's been digging singing, out yeah go on as long as she's singing that's all that matters it's it's, it's having that but it's for, for my mind I I don't mind what, what kids are singing or playing. I don't care. I mean, I might choose something else in the car, but that's the, a place of extreme tension sometimes between me and Mabel. Um, however, as long as they're passionate about it, I, I, I don't mind. Music is so, so important. And you were talking about your dad's um, musical taste and, and you said something like, you listed the bands he was into, which were all brilliant. And then you said, and now he, now he listens to Status Quo, I think, or he, he, in the end, listens to Status Quo. Yeah, and yeah. You've got to remember, Status Quo started off as a psychedelic, the equivalent of a, um, of a psychedelic garage band, but the British equivalent. They didn't start off as three-chord rocksters. They started off as flamboyant psychedelics. And it's then true, absolutely true. I think the thing for me with status quo is so here's a bit of a, here's a bit of my history. I I worked when I was seventeen. Um, I worked in a in a, a private school in the kitchen, and that private school is uh, there's lots of people named famous named people have been through it. So um, actors and and singers like Ronnie. I've got some great stories. Uh, Ronnie Woods. Uh, so no one could smoke in the building for obvious reasons. Um, and Ronnie Wood's daughter um, came to the school. And so Ronnie Woods came to the school um, and came to the kitchen because whenever parents came, they could do a tour of the school. So you used to get famous people um, coming round and you just have to go, oh my God, it's Ronnie Woods. He's really short. Um, <laughs> but he was smoking. Um, he was smoking. And um, I mean, to imagine this, right? You're in, a, in an industrially a big big kitchen so whatever size your your front room is it's probably that big and it's for cooking so it's it's hot things are on a stove and we we're doing a curry for for sunday night i think so we we're probably feeding about 120 kids curry 
and uh, so they come in and everyone's like, oh, hi. We all know who he is. Nobody says a word. He says, what's for dinner? And I said, oh, it's chicken curry. And I lifted the lid of the chicken curry and it smelled really nice. He did what any normal person would do, which is to lean into it to, uh, to, to give it a bit of a waft up his nose. Yeah. And he had his fag in his mouth like he always does. And the ash fell off into the chicken curry. <laughs> and without, and without missing a beat, he just picked up the wooden spoon that laid across the top and just stirred it in. And went lovely and then they left i've got i've got a ton of stories some i can't tell in public but i'll tell that one a ton of stories i mean brian may's son was there but the reason i'm not a big fan of status quo he's dead now so i think i can say this is um is uh uh what's his name richard the the guitarist rick. yeah rick yeah so all his kids all his boys i think he's got four of them are all called richard they're all named after him um, so one of his his sons was there, a really lovely boy. Um, he became a world champion at go karting, like later on. But his dad wanted him to be a musician, um, and he and he was pretty mean and nasty. And I kind of witnessed some of this about a bit of a bully, probably because he was massively on cocaine. But he was pretty horrible. And I was seventeen, and this kid was the same. Like, I was the same age as the kids that were at school. Yeah. So he kind of fit in and got on and stuff like that. And he used to come and chat to us, his son, um, you know, in lunch times when we used to hang out after lunch had been served and we'd wait until the evening session. It'd be like three hours and we'd just hang around in the school because it was easier than going home and doing stuff. Um, so that some of the kids used to come and hang out with me and, and the other um, kind of young kitchen porters and stuff that worked there um, and chat to us because we're all the same age. And he was one of them. And he was like, I just don't want to be a musician. Um, my dad wants me to be a musician. To be fair, he was an amazing keyboard player. Um, and But his dad was really horrible to him. And I think for me, I just, every time I think of status quo, I think of what a nasty bully he appeared to be. I mean, you only ever see, don't you, with anybody, a, a, a kind of slim part of, of or one facet of who they are. Totally. But the facet I remember seeing of him was not a particularly nice one. Um, and so I think I just went, no, oh, I don't like status quo. But you're right, they were, they were a psycho, but they were no, the, the 13 Floor Elevators for me, and they were one of my favourite psychedelic bands. Brilliant. But again, I, 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 I did that circle thing where I've kind of gone, oh, really into, uh, you know, lots of odd sort of stuff and then discovered them. And it was, I think through, um, possibly through um, Julian Cope, actually, if you've not read his autobiography, it's a joy. That and the Motley Crew, one of the uh, two bonkers uh, biographies that you can read. But Head On by Julian Cope. And he, his music taste, I followed a lot of the rabbit hole that, that, uh, that he talks about. And he was really into the psychedelics, as in the LSD, but also into the music that kind of drove that from, from the, in the late 60s and, and early 70s. But so, yeah, I'm not, I mean, it, not a big it, fan. It's really interesting. I, I was speaking only yesterday about Teardrop Explodes and Julian Cope. And, and I, I got really into that, that late 60s psychedelia. Um, and, and also, the, there's the British version of that. Is it Kaleidoscope with the British, big British psychedelic band of the time? 
Um, but literally anything on that Nuggets album, I think is really strong. That's a lovely, yeah. if anyone, if anyone, if no one, if people are listening and going, what, what they're talking about, Nuggets volume one and volume two are really, are really worth a dip into. It's kind of like, it was, it, it was actually in many ways, it was a precursor to punk, but it was also a precursor to prog rock and, and some of the sort of more unpleasant parts of, of, of no. pop music, in my humble opinion. But look, t- tell me what happened then. Tell me, you know, you, you're, 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 a, you're a porter or a chef at this school. Where did you, where did you go to next? So I was a, I was one of those lazy kids at school, so um, clever. Um, but I learned. We talked about this on the previous version of this podcast, so I'll bring it up now because it's relevant. Um, I um, being clever was seen as a um, as a, a weakness. I think is probably a good way by my family. Um, it wasn't. You weren't. If you were clever, you were trying to be above yourself. It was like. And so therefore, I, I was clever. I went to grammar school and got kicked out um, because I didn't behave particularly well and I grew my hair and had earrings and things. Um, so I didn't fit in, um, but I'm glad because I went to a comprehensive and I think I'm better for it. Um, a more rounded um, person. Um, not to say that private schools are, are bad per se, but um, they weren't for me um, in, in the way that they're structured. Um, so I hid my cleverness or I was quite snarky, um, clever. So it wasn't, it was, I, it became a thing inside me, I think, that I, I was embarrassed about. Um, so I didn't do particularly well at schools. I didn't want to be seen to be clever, but at the same time, um, I didn't want to be in in with the the dullards at the bottom of the class. I was always in a top set because I could do the work, but I put no effort in at all. Uh, you know, I used to get A5, five for effort, but A grade. Um, so I didn't do particularly well at school because I didn't apply myself, which is fine. Um, and so I went and learnt, I trained to be a baker. So I went to um, a, a local technical college and um, I was I, I was good. Um, I won gold medals in international competitions for my bread. I, I loved it. I was hugely into it. Um, I did work experience at Allied Bakeries. Um, helped invent King's Mill, which um, Tom, who's the bakery guy at the Do Lectures, wanted to strangle me for. And fair enough, it's just shit bread. Um, and the only reason that people like it is because it's got inverted sugar in it, and that's what makes it crusty and nice and tasty. It's not because it's a good bread, because it's industrially made. So um, keep eating your sourdough. But um, I got really into science through this route. So um, I ended up on a, on a doing an open university course at higher education college. I did a science degree, an environmental management degree. So this is where our paths cross again. Um, and I loved it. I was really into road protesting, um, you know, and I attended um, quite a lot of the, the big protests at the time. Yeah. Newbury and so on. Um, and bizarrely, um, about 10 years after I was at Newbury, I appeared in a cold cut video um, on the sidelines of a cold cut video. Um, really? Yeah, really. Someone said to me, I think I've just seen you in a cold cut video. And it was uh, my girlfriend at the time Can you was, send me was interviewed. I'll have to dig it out because I don't know where, whether I can find it on YouTube. But um, cold cut did a whole load of um, uh, hex static and cold cut did an album called Play, I think it was called. Um, and uh, they did a load of um, video cuts. There's one of the songs people might remember is Timber, which was made up of noises of people cutting down um, 
trees in the Brazilian rainforest. And they did another one, which I can't remember the name of. I'll have to, I'm sure I can find it out pretty easily. And a video of that. And I appear for a split second. I've got long hair. Um, and I think I've been sleeping in a tree house for about a week when that was taken. And my then girlfriend at the time is crying and going, it's not fair, they're killing the trees in, um, into the camera for about four seconds. And I just appear um, on the left hand side. But, um, but yeah, so I went, I left school, went to technical college, um, and then went to um, the National Bakery School in Southbank Polytechnic then, but became the university um, and did a BTEC and then, um, and then got back into academia. And I was, and I was really good. In, so I was 21 when I started my degree, so three years after, but a perfect time for me. I threw myself into it, I loved it. Um, I really enjoyed studying and, and the academia and, um, and the reading and reading around and it got it back into my love of books um, and reading books. I mean, I'm looking now I'm in the room I'm sitting in, there's probably about a thousand books in this wow. life, stacked up in piles and there's a whole cupboard of, of, of stuff and it's a huge range of, of, of again pulp up from pulp right up to high end you know you're kind of like oh god you know will self kind of um stuff uh, again i'm very eclectic with my books i'm not um not going to buy john, john grisham but i have read one but yeah. um but uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm the same. I've got an appreciation for it, but I'm, not, I'm unlikely to read loads and loads of it. I love a trash um, novel sometimes. I really do. It all depends. It all depends how I'm feeling. And these aren't trash novels, but they're, 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 they're I'm, I'm a, you know, you, you end up getting into crime and, and, and there's amazing crime and there's dreadful crime writing. Um, but I got hooked on Ian Rankin. It was actually, it was, it was almost out of control, if I'm honest with you. Um, yeah, yeah. My wife, um, my wife likes good, uh, like crime kind of stuff. There's Harlan Coben. Yeah. If that's your thing, that's absolutely fine. Uh, it's not for me. I've read one and, and then I read a second one and went, okay, I feel like I've read this before. That's when I sort of go, mm. um, equally, I, I'm more like to prefer, say, um, David um, Peace, who wrote the, uh, he did a, set of four books about the ripper um story yeah and they're really hard reads they're not they're not the, your dip in easy airport book reads they're they're brutal and i've read all four of those and i really enjoyed them because it it, it puts the the whole ripper era into into perspective from um a, from a, a, a several vantage points it's fiction, but it's it's based on on fact, um, and and so I quite like I quite like that kind of mix of stuff. I'm reading a book at the moment, Nick Harkaway, Norman, which is a bit like um, what's his name, David, um, who's the chap who did the bone. Um, he's known for Cloud Atlas. Him, whatever his name yes. is, David. Um, Same as the comedian Mitchell, David Mitchell. Similar kind of stuff, um, but. But um, very dark, very dystopian, um, surveillance-related um, crime. It's it's a thriller, but it's not it's not your everyday thriller. I, again, I'm, it's got about a thousand pages. My wife looks at me and goes, "What on earth? Are you how small is that writing?" Um, so I quite I do quite like those kind of books. But equally, I will pick up a you know an easy to read 
Jasper Ford or something like that, which a lot of people hate him because uh, he tries to be comedic and punny about um, classic English literature novels. But I quite like that. Um, he's the pop version of uh, of, of uh, highbrow literature. Uh, I can see I've got infinite. I've got three copies of Infinite Jest. I don't know why I've got three copies of it, but I've probably put it down somewhere and can't find it. I wanted to reread it and bought another one. Um, so yeah really into books uh and that was again university gave me that reignited that love of reading i was always into reading but it wasn't a thing you did in teenage years probably the same as piano playing probably got bullied for reading books so kind of stopped for for a few years um and now i'm an avid avid reader so i did that did university and then i left and moved to Dorset for a few years. That's where I met my wife, um, who's from Birmingham, I know, who knew. Um, it's because they, you, well, you'll know, you're, in a, you're, you're not too far up, you're a bit yeah, further north, right? right? But, but you'll you're know, and you're from Coventry, right? Is that, that you either go to Wales um, for, your, for your seaside, or you go to Western Supermare. Swanage. You go to Swanage. That's where you go. Or you go, exactly. Or you go to the South Coast. Yeah. And so her parents um, retired to the South Coast. And that's where I, that's where we met. That's amazing. Um, so I moved down there because it's got a big music and creative um, uh, kind of backdrop. I mean, people think of Bournemouth and, and Paul as this sleepy seaside town full of old people. And it is. But there's this underbelly of, of of creativity, and so I spent a few years there, and that was for me the equivalent of my art school years. I smoked a lot of dope. Um, I did a lot of stupid projects. Um, I started a business which made no money and lost a lot, put me into a lot of debt. But it it gave me everything I needed to build a creative career, which is started in the late, in the mid nineties, and I got into the web. Um, and um, and it kind of went from there, and that's been my career to date. Is the digital, creative, advertising, e marketing stuff brand, and now I sort of do an odd mix of business, commercial kind of strategy, brand strategy, creativity, marketing e thing. I don't even know what you'd call it, but that's kind of that's my wiggly squiggly career. That's amazing. And what, what are and you that, Go on. No, after you. Well, I was just going to say, well, now I'm studying for an MSc in systems thinking. Um, so, which is kind of broadening me out into policy and areas that are adjacent to the kind of stuff that I know, but, but are incredibly different. A lot of, again, a lot of overlap with stuff that you'll, um, you'll, know and and probably do a lot of without even realizing you're a systems thinker um, i imagine lots of people will will go what systems thinking um it's 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 uh it's got its roots in cybernetics in the macy conference in the states in the 50s so what you now would would think of as as, as ai and all that kind of stuff it, it it's got its basis in that but it's i i like the philosophical um, softer side of it, um, rather than the stuff that's coming out of um, MIT. But MIT was where systems really developed, um, and and um, it's been fascinating. I've only done one module of, of I don't know, I've got twelve modules to do. So I've only done the first one. I've only just started in November, 
um, and I've just finished the first one and my second one starts in a couple of weeks. But um, I don't know where that's going to take me, but I imagine I won't be doing the same work I'm doing now in five years' time. Wow. So, but I love the idea of changing careers or or refining direction now. I love, I love that. Tell me, because um, I know a bit about your story. Tell me, tell me, tell me about the, the kind of like the big challenge you had o over the last decade. Um, so again, we talked about this on the last one. So um, of the point, uh, one thing I think it's worth saying is, you said I'm a really lovely man and that's so sweet. And it wasn't always, and I'm probably not always now, but I was a bit of an arsehole. Um, and that's rooted in that kind of intellectual having to dumb that down as a kid because it was seen to be, a, you know, something to be ashamed of. And I think that made me quite angry. And in my 20s, I was I was quite an angry person. And then I met my wife, who's kind of softened me a little bit. And I had a kid, which I think ultimately changes you as a person. And, um, and I'm not as angry. I get angry about things, but I'm not an arsehole as much. Um, and I'm trying to be a much better person um, to other people and be more empathetic. I don't think I had a huge amount of empathy 15 years ago as much as I perhaps do now. Um, or I was embarrassed. I think actually that's fair. I was embarrassed about the softer side of my nature and the more empathetic side of my nature. And so in order to shield that, I was, I was a bit of an arse. Oh, that's interesting. Um, not, not only did you hide that side, but you then you then became aggressive. Not aggressive. They're my words, not yours. But you no, I think that's up. right. Good word. Good word. Yeah. That's really interesting, isn't it? Because, but for um, a long time, Simon, business was seen as like that you were soft if you were vulnerable and open, and now that's increasingly seen as a strength. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's um, it's quite weird how it's come around. I'm sure it'll, it'll flip back around again, but um, in the same way that it has done in politics, um, I think these things are generally cyclical. But um, yeah, I was a bit of an arsehole. So um, I think what's what's um, what's changed for me is uh, definitely becoming um, a parent or having responsibilities. So you don't have to become a parent. But I think having responsibility for something that's dependent upon you, so whether you're a carer or, um, I don't know, sourdough, it could be sourdough, right? Because I know people who've cried over losing their sourdough because it's, it's such a bitch. Um, so it could be just something you have to, to look after and have responsibility for. And sometimes other people rely on with kids. That's, that's a, 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 an easy one. Um, so that kind of softened me. And then obviously, um, just before we met, we met in 2017 at Do. Um, so the year before that, sorry, I'm going to, I'm going to go on a weird kind of meander here. I just recently read your thing about running. Yeah. So I was, I was a smoker and smoked weed, um, I smoked cigarettes because I was bullied by those kids at the back of the bus and they all smoked. So I smoked, they stopped bullying me. Um, I grew up in a smoking household anyway, so I think it was probably inevitable that um, I would smoke at some point. I gave up um, before my daughter was born. But I've given up, probably been a non-smoker or ex-smoker, however you want to look at it, for, for longer than I smoked. Um, so, um, and again, I was, uh, as soon as I gave up smoking, I became less angry. Something else I really noticed. 
um, smoking made me a lot angrier, even though people go, they think it calms them down. I think nicotine and me were not good um, bedfellows. But, um, and then um, I got really into running. And I'll tell you now, right, I, there was never a time in my life where me and running in the same sentence would have been, I mean, people, when I said I got into running, people are like, what? You hate running. I like walking. I will walk across London rather than get on the tube. Um, I love walking because of the thinking time. But I got really into running, not because of the meditation, because all I could think about was I'm going to die on if I have to run another 100 metres, because I found it really hard. But what I enjoyed was the fact that you could, um, and you talk about this in your article, is actually you can you can make quite big gains in quite a quick time so you feel you get satisfaction and motivation out of that and i i fell in love with running for about a year i went and paid 150 quid for a pair of running shoes i got really into it i bought some gear i went out three or four times a week from, from a sedentary kind of thing but i could never quite do a sub half an hour five uh 5k yeah i don't know right and it was bugging me right really driving me nuts and i thought it'll be one of those things i'll just keep going and it'll get better but it never did it'd always be like 31 minutes and um and i could never do more than five go wasn't ever 10k was definitely beyond me 5k was just about what i could cope with we went away to north yorkshire and i went out for a run and it, it snowed the day before and it was really cold but the sun was out and it was a beautiful day and i went running and i did a couple of miles because um, there wasn't really anywhere to run that wasn't really icy and horrible and I hadn't thought about that so I came back and the next day I woke up with a cold and uh, and a cough and my daughter had the same cough and cold so just one of those kind of winter things and I'd been out running so hers cleared up and mine didn't and I did that thing where I go if you've had a cough for the last two weeks and you're a smoker or an ex-smoker go and see your doctor so um, I did I went to see my doctor and they said you've got post nasal drip you've had a cold and it's still in the back of your your sinuses and it's dripping down your throat and it's making you cough so fast forward nine months of going to the doctor and i'd had tests had blood tests and and, and a, an x-ray on my chest and there, and there was a little infection and that's it well that infection was pneumonia and i had pneumonia in my right lung for nine months without it being detected and dealt with and then um, one Saturday morning, I woke up in October um, in 2016, and I couldn't get out of bed. I mean, literally couldn't get out of bed. I was felt so rough. I had to phone my wife. I had to thank God for Siri, because I had to get Siri to phone my wife, because I couldn't get the energy to pick up my phone, which I don't normally. We have, we have a kind of unwritten rule in our house that phones don't go upstairs at night. For some reason, I'd taken it upstairs um and thankfully i did because i had to alert my wife anyway i was so ill she called an ambulance um on the advice of nhs 111 and they yeah. turned up and they went fuck you need to go into a hospital like you are really ill like we think you've got sepsis i'm like shit that's pretty that's pretty bad so anyway straight into hospital um antibiotics and i'm allergic to penicillin so i have to have really high strength um non-pelicillin antibiotics so I was really ill and then on day three 
and I and I wrote about about it. So I was like, three doctors turned up, and one of them sat on my bed. And I'll tell you what, right? If if you're in hospital and a doctor sits on your bed, that that means they're going to tell you something you don't want to hear because doctors don't, by and large, sit on your bed. I don't want to scare anyone that's in hospital listening to this and a doctor sat on their bed that morning. But um, that's my takeaway from the conversation we had. And he said, we've looked at your CT scan and you've got lung cancer so he said the two words as an ex-smoker you don't or as anyone i think but generally as an ex-smoker you've given up in order to be more healthy and done the right thing to be told at 43 years old um that you've got lung cancer and that's all you hear you just hear those two words and you just go well i know what that means that means dead um and anyway then they left they do that they leave and you're kind of left on your own um, and I went on that journey and I was very lucky. The tumor was in, uh, wasn't in the lung. It was in the bronchial tube, um, between two lobes. So, um, thankfully on our wonderful NHS in Tooting is one of the world leading lung, uh, surgeon specialists, a woman called Carol Tan, who, um, single-handedly on her own created, um, keyhole surgery for lung patients anyway mine was quite bad she couldn't do mine keyhole she had to cut me open with a you know 14 inch scar down my back pull my ribs apart haul my lung out and chop it off so i've got a one and a bit lungs um but she saved she saved my life i had chemotherapy um and then i had um radiotherapy and then a month after my radiotherapy went um i went to do lectures and i bought my do lectures ticket so when if you go to do lectures you 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 apply for your ticket in february or something like that and you buy it in march so i bought it i applied for it uh, just as my chemo was starting and i bought it and it's a substantial sum of money without even knowing if i'd be alive in july um but I was very tired. I think most people that remember me from the do lectures go, oh, you were the guy that went to bed at like nine o'clock at night because you were really knackered. Um, yes, because I, I just... I was the guy that asked brilliant questions. <laughs> I, I, I remember <laughs> That's you nice. as someone who, who was incisive and quizzical in a really... In a, in a way that was very different from everybody else there who just soaked it up and not in a bad way, but they were there to, to learn. You, you, you were the one that, that, that asked questions and I really like that. Yeah, um, but it gave, I mean, that obviously changes your perspective hugely. Um, and the, the theme at the do that year was, was give us get lucky. And I've always, I've always liked doing things for people. Um, and I'm probably quite bad. I'm one of those givers that gives too much and doesn't take enough. And I'm learning. I'm learning to balance it out a little bit more and have done a lot of work on that in the last two years. But um, it struck a chord with me. And it was a great um, few days away. And I made some fantastic lifelong friends, you included, but many others um, uh, at do that year, even though I was really tired. Um, so if you if you are having radiotherapy, leave it till the following year before you go to do. If you're going to go to do, because you will be very tired. Um, and uh, so yeah, that that obviously changed me a lot. I mean, as you imagine, it, it, yeah. it would change you if someone said to you the two the the word that you don't want to hear. Um, it kind of makes you go, okay. Um, what do I do? And I think the first thing I did after the, 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 the once it kind of sunk in that afternoon is I wrote an email to um, 
15 very close friends and said, look, I've had some pretty shit news today, but I want, can you do me a favor? You just go and find the one person or the group of people that you love the most and just tell them um, because it's a really good thing to do. And also I'm, I'm pretty sure I'm going to, I'm going to get over this despite the fact that I've been given probably the worst news um, you know, I don't, cancer, there's no hierarchy of cancer. If you've got it, it's shit, regardless of where it is in your body. But your lungs are pretty important to you. Yeah. Um, it, it's meant I can't run anymore because I don't have enough lung capacity. It's not that I can't breathe the air in. I can't get the oxygen to my muscles. So I get, I get lactic acid buildup like within five minutes of running. So I just, I, walking is something I can walk for 30, 40 miles without feeling the effects of it, but I can't run. So it's really upset me that I can't run anymore, but it has made me a much nicer person. Um, so it's the, one of the benefits of, of, of cancer is that it's, um, it's made me nicer. It, well, that's interesting. I mean, what, what was it? The, was it the potential, end of your life that that made you nicer or was it the process of recovery slowing down and and accepting the love of others that made you nicer what, what, what was it so i think it's um i think it's a bit about it's a little bit about the finite time left and it's not about fitting everything i never had a bucket list before and i didn't get a bucket list after I think it's a little bit of, of um, you know, people always say, you know, can you put a dent in the universe? And they see that as sometimes in startup culture and that kind of stuff. But for me, it's like, well, how, what's the lasting legacy? I don't want people to go, oh yeah, Simon's a bit of an arsehole, wasn't he? I would prefer that they went, you know, that there's more positive energy left that will go on somewhere else. And the best thing to do that is to be more empathetic. Um, but it, and it enabled me to open myself up to things that I previously would have closed myself down to, laughed at, or, you know, my previous self that I described. So it's not about spirituality, but um, just doing things like more improv kind of stuff and not being afraid to be a bit of an idiot, but also not being ashamed of the things I'm really good at. Um, and not to be arrogant and boastful about it, but to just go, oh yeah, I'm quite good at that. I should do a bit more of it if I want to. Um, so that's, I think it was a change in that sense, um, simply because it's it's a chance to, to kind of start again. It's a good, um, it's a backstop that people, I can go, oh yeah, that from that moment on, I can see a change. I don't want to go back and have to go through that experience again. So from this moment on, I'm going to lead my life the way that I should have left, led it 20 years ago. Um, and you do, I mean, you've been on a lot of these things. You go on um, retreats and that kind of stuff, which again, I never would have done. And I probably still won't do, but it's been a bit like that. Yeah. Where you have to, you go inside yourself. I couldn't go out, um, you know, I was on chemo and stuff and, and, and um, people sometimes people forgot about me some people just never spoke to me again they didn't want to know and that's fine i'm cool with that 
it is a difficult thing to 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 get your head around but you get a lot of time on your own um you get a lot of time to sit and think did you feel me it's it's an interesting it's an interesting mirror of, of you climbing that tree and and saving the ball and then being forgotten by the people who ball it was to the mirror of you going through this and then the people who forgot you walked away carried on with with that with their lives i mean i guess the difference is the people that loved you stayed around and those that didn't stay around didn't love you i guess it was a nice a nice i guess it was a filter yes uh, um i don't know if it's like that i wrote i did write a blog a friend of mine said you've got to write a cancer blog and I refused because I was like just no I don't cancer's really dull I can tell you right now it's the dullest disease I've ever had and I've had a few um, because nothing happens but it because it's all inside you um, so in the end I did write a blog five things I learned about cancer which is a, a medium post if you search purple sign um, medium you'll find it um, I think my account's still live um, I wrote this um, blog post and very little of it is actually about me it's mostly about how it affects the people around you but no one seems to worry about them because they only concern themselves with the patient but my poor wife and daughter the, the effect on them was was awful cool. you know um, um, and no one ever asked them how they were they always asked how I was um, yes yeah, so he's the same as he was before he's either really ill or he's sat on a sofa because he can't move um it makes you appreciate things in a different way people as well as the kind of everyday stuff that you do and you get used to so i will um one thing i would say to anyone listening to this podcast try wiping your ass with the hand that you don't normally use there you go insight into my life for about eight months um and anyone who has a shoulder injury i imagine it's the same but it's these things you don't think about it makes you reappraise loads of stuff so i think for some people they would just like don't know how to deal with it i don't know what to say and therefore i'm just not going to do anything and those people have faded into the background and i we don't speak that doesn't mean that they won't come back i think things like that for me have always been quite transitory anyway i don't it's terrible to say you've got friends you've known since school right you still speak to i've never my wife i think is the, the longest the person who's spent the longest time in my company and hasn't moved on i don't have lifelong friends i don't know if that makes me weird i don't know if there's something with me or whether it's just it's just happened that way um and i'm i'm kind of okay with that I'm kind of okay with um the dipping in and out and and the fading away kind of stuff. So it never actually bothered me. I think it bothers other people more um, rather than it bothers me. I'm, quite, I'm kind of okay with the fact. I don't think it's about whether they loved me or didn't love me. I think it's how people deal with stuff that's uncomfortable. And I've got really comfortable with that uncomfortableness and that uncertainty, hence why I'm doing a systems thinking MSC and the kind of work that I do and not having answers and, yeah being seen as an expert in things um and it's no different on an emotional level does that make sense yeah it does no it it, it really does and i mean it's, it's very buddhist that is actually it's very like just focus on you and now and not and not on the things that you can't you can't impact 
It's really interesting. And how, how did you, I mean, your recovery is um, uh, something to rejoice. How did your wife and, uh, how did your wife and daughter come back to normal after this? Did they, um, did, did they come back I, to normal? I don't know if they have actually. My, my daughter, um, I hope she won't mind, but um, she's suffered quite badly from anxiety. She's a lot better now. Um, but it still weighs heavily on her mind. Singing is the thing for her that um, that that works to help her deal with that. And she's had counselling. My wife is having and has had counselling about it. Um, so yeah, I think the effect on them has been has been profound. But equally, I think in a weird sense, we're a much closer family having gone through it. Um, in in a way that really hard to describe but we look out for each other a lot more than I think we did previously. That's interesting and what's the I mean it's it's, it's hard to it's hard to to, to to talk about this I guess but what's the was there anything as you were going through this was there any any sort of flashback any analysis of your life to date that you thought you know I wish I'd done that differently. Was there anything that you would want to to to, to relive in a different way? I don't think no, because I think all those experiences have made me what I am. I think the the thing that I said before about um, being ashamed of aspects of you know intellect and that kind of stuff. Um, I wish that that hadn't been something to be ashamed of as I was growing up, but. I, I can't change that. I wish I hadn't been a, so much of an, an arsehole, which is a product of that. Um, you know, and I, and I know I was, not all the time, but sometimes. Um, so yeah, it changed, you know, I was adamant that I was going to be less of a, 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 of a an idiot um, and a, a kind of intellectual snob and that kind of stuff. And equally, I've discovered that, that it's actually nobody really knows no nobody you, you might know more facts and figures and stuff but it doesn't make you a better person um, and actually the the people that are open the most to not knowing and but trying to understand are the ones that you want to surround yourself with and that's what i try to do now which is why i like to hang out with you um i like to hang out with people like steve chapman who's a mutual friend of ours yeah. um people that just um they're not judging you um they're just sharing time and space with you and if that makes them happy then they'll spend time and space with you and if it doesn't then they won't but that doesn't mean that they won't later on they're not saying well that's it i'm done with simon because you know he made a joke about something i found a bit off color or you know um said he thought my wife looked nice in lycra I haven't said that to, to Steve or you, and I'm not suggesting that I am saying that to you, but do you know what I mean? I, mean, <laughs> I haven't made I mean, some, things that make you feel uncomfortable, you still go, that's oh, okay, Simon's Simon, Simon. And I'm trying to find the balance of people like that in my life that are just accepting of that ebb and flow, but we, we are connected at a really deep level. Um, and that's there's the kind of people I'm seeking out more and more. And do they find you now? 
I think it's a bit like um, I always I always found it really funny when I smoked weed, is that it didn't matter where you went in the world, you'd bump into someone, and there was a tacit understanding that you both liked to smoke. You didn't have to actually ask; it would just kind of happen. Um, and I think it, it's if you it's because you're putting out that kind of vibe. Um, and I think it's a very similar thing um, with with the way that it works now. Is that you? The way you hold yourself, the way you behave, the actions that you take, they immediately resonate with the kind of people that you want to spend time with. And so, you know, if you act like an arsehole, you'll attract people who don't care about you and are only looking out for themselves. If you act more kindly and empathetic, you'll, those other people will still arrive, but you'll see them for what they are and they'll realize that, that and they'll go away and you'll the people that you are similar to you or want to be around those kind of people will will naturally gravitate towards you i get that completely my friends i get that absolutely completely and and just just to bring this to a to a close what is it um what is it you're listening to now music wise yeah um well, I haven't, do you know what? I haven't listened to any music today. Well, actually, no, it's a lie. I have. Um, I, so I have an iPod, which is an anachronistic device in this day and age. But I do it because um, I've got so many records and MP3s and this kind of stuff. I think I've got 130,000 iTunes um, stuff. But I just bundle on a, a, a bunch of stuff kind of randomly without thinking about it. Um, so I was listening to um, some stuff on that today, which was a little bit Bowie, um, yeah. which I obviously chucked chucked on because, you know, again, that's 2016, fucker. I love Bowie, but he started that year as being a shit year. Um, I ended it. Um, but yeah, but, but, but Bowie, what else have I been listening to? Do you know, I'm going to have to open up my Spotify, but I've started doing this thing. I know you do your your woodshed sounds which i really love which is a, a kind of very eclectic kind of thing and so I, I was looking at my spotify okay so i've been listening to a lot of slow dive oh wow shoegazing yeah but just not i mean the last album 2017 was great but also re i was really big into kind of ride and uh, and yeah. slow dive and the kind of shoegazy kind of stuff there's a lot of bands the mega city four um uh, uh, bands, uh, that kind of era, um, senseless things, all that kind of stuff. I'm sort of really into all that kind of, despite being a metaler at the time. Um, so that's why I've, that's why I've uh, recently listened to. Here we go. I've been listening to some grime, just uh, some general kind of grime stuff. Um, I've been listening to um, the Magnetic Fields because they've got a new album coming out soon. Um, and I'm a big Magnetic Fields fan. We're listening to this artist called Otter, O-T-T-A. She's um, quite jazzy, a little bit like Amy Winehouse in terms of, of, of the kind of jazz. Yeah. Not like, not like Amy Winehouse at all in terms of sound. Reminds me of an artist called Rox, R-O-X, who came out about 2014, was like a 16-year-old Iranian um, kind of jazz pop singer. Very similar to her, but again, not. Um, quite electronic and and it's got this kind of odd modern sound but a voice that sounds like it comes from the 40s 
Um, I can't remember how I stumbled that across her. Ace. I really like the sound of that. Oh, double TA. I've been listening to her. She's only got an EP out. She's only got like four songs. And weirdly, um, so here's, here's a weird thing. I'm not a fan of Coldplay. Uh, there's a couple of songs on the second album. I kind of go, yeah, you know, well, they're not too bad. I've seen them live because I went to Glastonbury and, the, and they were live. Um, I'm not a fan. My mum was a big fan when she was alive. She was a massive fan of Coldplay. And uh, I was very disappointed in her. She did like the Libertines before they got really famous because I played it to her and she loved it. Um, so I forgive her that. However, there's a, a DJ called Faultline. Um, and you can't get this on Spotify because in, in the UK anyway, I don't know which, uh, it's on Spotify, but you can't play it. There's a song called Where Is My Boy by Faultline. Um, if you can find it and listen to it, I don't care if you think Chris Martin is an ass. I guarantee you that song will change you. It's one of my favourite songs. It came on my iPod and I don't even remember putting it on. It's from about 2002. Right. It's like really early doors when Yellow was out for Coldplay. And we did this vocal for Faultline. Um, and... Um, it's it's truly amazing and that came on this morning and um yeah it almost brought me to tears you introduced me to space toast that's on my that's uh they're really a, like Ash that band they're a little ashby band but i really like them yeah they i can't i've said to you they're a bit like a, a bit like Arctic monkeys cross with um um who did i say it was I can't remember. Campesinos. yeah absolutely right it was absolutely right I yeah that. again lost campesinos would be another um band that for the last 15 years has probably soundtracked um my life quite a little bit I I, again i don't know why i just i quite like their zany upbeat um kind of stuff um and fortet um seems i've been listening to a lot of fortet um for the for the at least the last um two weeks so there we go otter though o double t a Go and okay. have a listen to her. I'm going to go and listen to her See now. See what you think. And look, Simon, just, just, just to finish, just to finish off, I'm struck by, I'm struck by, there's two or three things that you've said that have been really interesting. Firstly, it, you, the way you changed who you were to mimic the people who weren't necessarily being nice to you, the bullies on the bus, the smokers, people at work who were nasty, you then became nasty and I don't think you feel the need to do that anymore and, and that's really clear and then I'm still struck by the image of this really super kind man that climbed a tree to get somebody else's ball down and then was left and I'm I'm thinking you may not have I'm thinking you've now got people underneath that tree waiting to help you down I'm thinking that that, that, that you are now less alone than you were when you were working with maybe bigger organizations and, and, and meeting more people. Yeah. I th yeah, I think so. Although, you know, one of my clients is a big global um, life sciences um, client, you know, several thousand people around the world. Um, although they're kind of like little, they're all little businesses um, within a larger kind of brand, if you like, but they're all lovely. Um, um, we had a conversation with them yesterday on a call and, about diversity and inclusion um and i was saying like there isn't anyone i've met that isn't that, that, that it's not about who you are and what you look like it's it's about this 
they've they've all got that common goal there um which is to to make the world safer through science and uh and it's amazing there isn't literally it doesn't matter whether it's the receptionist or someone on the board or anyone in between if you speak to them you instantly get that they're on they've got that common goal and i think that's quite rare certainly for a big organization um i think you're right but i think part of it is that i'm not afraid i'm i'm not giving those people permission that it's okay i'm okay and on my own so i think i'm partly to blame for those people running away to go and play football and not helping me down um whereas now i think i'm i'm trying to be a bit more like a campfire and getting people to to kind of huddle around me um whereas before i was probably like i'm fine just fuck off and go and play a game of football i'm i'm cool i'm good um you used so think to you used to repel on purpose now you attract yeah so i don't think it's i think it's a bit of both i think you know it's like anything there's a balance um so yeah it's interesting you say that because it's only then i thought hang on maybe i was just saying to people it's all good i'm fine you know and outwardly whereas now i'm i'm happy being more outwardly vulnerable Simon, you are genuinely one of, I, I almost went into um, the train guy. I almost went into Bob Mortimer's the train guy there. You are, <laughs> as ever, a wise wizard. Um, but I genuinely mean it. You are one of the kindest people I know. And I can't see the person that you described yourself as being in the past. I can't, I can't see that. I only know you as super kind, super open and genuinely loving and I, I i'm glad that you've been through what you've been through if it's changed you that much and i'm really sad that you had to go through that in order to change you thank you mark and it's been a real wow i hope you enjoyed that as i said um beforehand simon is just one of those utterly lovely people and and the interesting thing for me is you know if it takes if it takes getting lung cancer, if it takes having a daughter, if it takes, if it takes that to, to, to change who you are, then I don't know. I mean, why do we wait so long before we become nicer? What is it? What is it about not being nice? That's so, so compulsive. And I actually can't imagine Simon as not being nice. He's an utterly lovely man, but I guess, I guess we leave, university or college or growing up or the pub and um and, and we ape the we ape the behavior of those that we see around us and so i guess it's actually down to our environment and our mentors in terms of setting the the casting the die for the person that we become and then i guess it reinforces it when it works so the more we see kindness working then maybe the more will be kind and it will spread um and i'm just utterly you know uh hung up on that image of simon still up that tree um while everybody else had wandered away he'll be all right he got himself up there he can get himself down and um and that's gonna stay with me for ages because because maybe we're all a little bit guilty of walking away thinking someone's okay up that tree and um yeah, I really love that tale. There's so much in there that I love. It's a really long podcast and it was over Zoom. So, you know, we, it was glitchy, but that's just bandwidth at the moment, isn't it? Anyway, um, if you've got any comments, um, if you want to get in touch with Simon, then get in touch with me, Mark, at this is ape, 
www.ipsos.co.uk and I'll promise I'll get back to you. If you know anybody that you think might make a good subject for the for the podcast, then please uh, let me know. Don't 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 be afraid. Um, fire them my way. And whatever you're doing for the rest of today, I hope it's um, productive or pleasurable or hopefully even both. All right. Thank you. Bye bye.